This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that is a meat based diet to work on gut healing. So, I had the pleasure of sitting down again with Dr. Elizabeth Bright. If you didn't catch our first episode, I will link the podcast as well as the YouTube in the show notes. So, make sure to check that out. Dr. Bright is a wealth of information. For those of you that don't know her, she is a naturopath and an osteopath, and she focuses on the body's natural ability to heal. Dr. Bright is from the States, but now lives in Italy, and she has a practice there and works with patients to get to root cause healing by supporting the thyroid and hormones with a meat based or carnivore diet. Let's get right into the conversation. Hi, Dr. Bright. I'm so excited to have you on again.、Um, it's always a pleasure chatting with you, and I'm so excited to dive into hormones and thyroid information.、Um, so, if you can introduce yourself to the people listening and watching and just share how you use a high fat、uh, meat based approach、um, in your practice.、Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I actually am a naturopath and osteopath, and I have a practice in southern Italy, but I do practice a lot online now. Um, I recently had to close, you know, I had to close my studio through the two lockdowns we had in Italy. And yes, I, I was actually recommending a ketogenic diet previously. And then I went into menopause and I saw so many benefits from, and I went carnivore and I saw so many benefits for myself. And so that、um, inspired me to do a lot of research. And then I wrote my book, Good Fat is Good for Women Menopause. And it just became an integral part of my,、um, My protocol, the carnivore diet. Okay. And the high fat approach primarily、sure. because women who come to me have been avoiding fat for decades. They have been dieting for decades since they were adolescents. And for a period of time, a high fat approach definitely reduces inflammation for them and gives them back the fat in order to make those steroid hormones. Let's just、um, take it back a little bit and just talk about the basics of. Thyroid, thyroid hormones. You know, I know that the hypothalamus、um, produces TRH, which is a hormone that then signals the pituitary to then, and then the pituitary basically produces TSH to release to the thyroid that then produces T4 and then down the path to T3. But if you can just talk about the different, I guess, thyroid hormones and maybe even some of the antibodies, just some basics so we can understand and have the lay of the land so that we can then start talking about. Thyroid hormone. Yeah, so the thyroid actually makes several hormones. It makes T4, about 80% T4, 16% T3,、uh, 4% T2, and T1. And T2 is becoming very interesting because it's very much involved in metabolism、um, and really part of the functioning heart, you know. So it, it stimulates the, the heart muscle.、Okay. And, and then the thyroid also makes calcitonin, which regulates calcium in our body. So it's very, there's, it's not just the one hormone that it makes. And I believe that that T3 that the thyroid makes is very important also for the downstream conversion 
Um, so then there, there's the thyroglobulin, which is made in the follicular cells of the thyroid. And that is part of the T4 to T3 synthesis. And then thyroid peroxidase is what uh, traps the iodine. It's an, it's an enzyme. The thyroglobin is a, is a protein and thyroid peroxidase is an enzyme. And that's involved. That's, so first it's thyroglobulin, then it moves the thyroid peroxidase, the enzyme, and that the finished product is after it works with the iodine is the thyroid hormone. So the problem with the antibodies is those two antibodies, antithyroglobulin and antithyroid peroxidase, attack because they always attack protein-derived products and they denature those uh, those substances. So if I were to go to my doctor, obviously the kind of conventional care, they only really measure TSH. But if I were to just get a basic panel, what markers would you say are a must um, to get? Well, I would definitely say, so the TSH is really important. That's the problem today is the TSH. And I will talk about that in a minute, because the TSH, a lot of um, receptors are not, a lot of uh, the body is not receptive to the TSH. So there may be a need, so it doesn't tell, TSH doesn't respond when there's not enough hormone, for instance, but definitely TSH, free T3, free T4, um, because that's the function. The two antibodies, unfortunately, they usually often only ask for anti-TGO. In Europe now, all the labs say, studies show you should also ask for anti-TBO, and they usually do in Europe now. The other thing that I would look for, though, is not only those, because you can actually have a hypofunctioning thyroid and your blood numbers are okay. So that's why what we were talking about before, symptoms are so important. Um, There's so many nutrients that are not absorbed, as you very well know, with all your experience in gut function. I look at vitamin D, I look at B12, I look at iron. So you can kind of see if the thyroid's not working, there are these other things that won't work either. So that may be something that I would investigate further. Yeah. And um, I know that a lot of the T4 is converted in the liver. And then there are some um, T3 in the peripheral tissue. And then some of the, I guess, the conjugated versions of T4 um, in the gut then get converted to T3. So there's areas that we don't necessarily measure in the blood for T3. But I know that there are some people, including myself, that a low carb diet all of a sudden lowers the T3. Um, can you talk a little bit about if you see that as a normal state for a carnivore ketogenic diet, the TSH is normal, T4 is normal, all the other markers that we mentioned are relatively normal, but the T3 is now below the normal range. Okay, well, first, we're not really sure that how much is converted in and the liver and the kidneys. So the diagonase is D1, D2, D3. D1 is in the liver and the kidneys, and they go from 81%, as high as 81% or as low as 15% as converted. So they don't really know. But these, you know, this is also new. They're still looking at these conversion pathways. Um, and the other thing is that, well, a re- recent review said that they don't think that um the primary conversion of T4 to T3 is necessarily D1 activated. So that's the idonase, that's the selenocysteine um, enzyme that's in those primarily in the liver and the kidneys that's doing that that conversion. A lot of conversion is done by D2, which is in skeletal muscle in the heart and in the brain. So the interesting thing that the, the conversion is done by adrenergic stimulation. So when there's stress or when you, you know, there's your sympathetic nervous system is stimulated, D2 will convert a bunch of T4 into T3 because you need to respond to that stimulus. The heart does. And then again, like I mentioned, T2, that's where the T2, the T3 to T2 is converted by the D2 because the heart rhythm is regulated by D2. So there's still a lot we don't know as far as that is so peripheral tissue may be more important in converting than we actually know. I mean, if I am eating less carbohydrates in general, I have a less cortisol need, assuming that I'm also managing the life stressors, right? So if I need less conversion, because I have less stressors, 
it's just interesting to me that the, there's a whole camp of people that believe if your T3 is too low or that a low carb diet restricts the thyroid metabolism too much. And so therefore we should eat more carbs. I find it interesting because yes, my T3 is technically low and I don't even know if it's low anymore. That was two years ago, but in that interim, I also nursed my son for five years. And I know you mentioned that it's normal, um, you know, eons ago where women were breastfeeding for longer. So they had less periods and that was exactly me. So the first two to three years of um, nursing my son, I didn't have my period. And then it came later. Um, and I was even able to add, you didn't have your period. <laughs> you shouldn't because you're nursing. I mean, that's... Right. yeah. And so at the tail end, when he was nursing less and stuff, um, that's when I got it back. And then it was consistent. Um, I mean, I have the energy to do all of this stuff and, and I was still nursing him. So even though my T3 was technically low compared to the standard conventional markers, I mean, I feel fine. And not everyone feels fine with like a 1.7, 1.8 marker. But do you, would you consider that if we just look at symptoms, then maybe I'm okay? Definitely. So, so I, I mean, I got to tell you, in, in, in a lot of cases, I won't even look at the bloods because the symptoms are predominant. Okay. And that's how they did it before we had, we can't only look at numbers. The T, the TSH um, is produced several times during the day. You'll um, convert, as we said before, convert hormone as needed. So primarily when you were nursing, you were using a ton of nutrition. So you may actually have been under undernourished, you could say, and that will lower T3. There's nothing to do with carbs, but being undernourished, you yourself, because so much is going out, it's not a bad thing. It's just that you were feeding your child and there may not have been enough uh, energy for you to, for your thyroid to upregulate and convert in that case. If you didn't have symptoms, that's hugely important. The thing though, is that um, symptoms vacillate. So not in your case, but you can have low, you can go from low to hyperfunctioning especially in Hashimoto's, that's what we see a lot, but the carbs, that whole thing. I mean, I did a post about that too. There's absolutely no truth to that. Um, There's not a single, I read all those studies, most of them produced in the eighties. There's a single one that shows on a glucose diet with rats, glucose diet, only rat chow T3 went down. All the studies in humans show only if it's a hypocaloric diet. And there's even one that they did fat or carbs mm-hmm. and it didn't go down. They raised a little bit of carbs. It didn't improve until they raised the caloric count. So it had nothing to do with the carbs. It had nothing to do with the macronutrient. It had to do with, they were starving. So that goes to D3, uh, reverse T3. I didn't talk about in the markers, which you were mentioning before. Reverse T3 is backpedaling T3. So if your body doesn't have enough food, or there's a ton of inflammation, you are in a stress state, your body is not going to make T3. You're not going to convert T3 because T3 is a growth hormone. It's a regenerating hormone. It's an energy hormone. You can't metabolize energy if you don't have it. Mentioning about my breastfeeding, that makes a lot of sense where why my T3 might've been low at that time. And my son has stopped nursing for over a month and I still have a little bit of milk. So it's wild that the human body works that way. So maybe when um, I know for sure I'm not making any more milk, I could test my T3. And then in terms of what you're just mentioning, it's really interesting because a lot of people in the standard American diet, the conventional diets, their T3 is actually higher because um, maybe there's more of a demand for it, but it's not getting absorbed. And so it's usually like excess T3 causes T3 resistance. And then maybe if we're just naturally needing less of it, we are just more T3 sensitive, or again, it's in the peripheral tissues or some it's, some of it's in the gut. But I mean, we naturally, our bodies produce our T3, which from my understanding, it's to pick up any excess T3 that then you can remove out of your body. So it's just, yeah, it's, it does that. Um, I have to tell you though, all of my patients, most of my patients came to me before they were carnivore. They all had low T3. Okay. Um, So there is a case to be made for using less, the whole Finney argument, you know, you need less T3, so you're making less. Um, But there's still a lot of people who are, who have symptoms and who are hypothyroid and they feel better when you 
treat the hyperthyroidism. So that to me, if you, I mean, immediately a carnivore diet is the best thing because it gives you the nutrients thyroid needs. You say, you know, like you say, tyrosine, my big thing is iodine, carnivore diet, you get the zinc, um, the proteins, the, everything you need in the meat more than it is in the vegetables and the fruit. So you have the raw materials. If you add the iodine, you have the raw materials. However, many people are taking beta blockers. Many people are taking benzodiazepines. Many people are taking all kinds of drugs and stimulants. Remember, stimulants will lower thyroid function because that adrenal stimulation is constantly ongoing. Thyroid hormone will be converting constantly in response. Like you run out of adrenal, you know, function, you're going to run out of thyroid function as well. Maybe it's years of accumulation of excess stimulation and all these drugs put into it. A lot of patients who come to me are on medication. Those interfere with thyroid conversion, thyroid absorption. Yeah. I didn't realize that beta blockers block thyroid receptors. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I do have clients that are on beta blockers, but they also are hypothyroid. So that's very interesting. Beta and that blocker brain thyroid function. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Studies you mentioned, um, a lot of those um, studies show the hypocaloric. So they were under eating. And I think that's what happens for a lot of women on a ketogenic diet, right? We are always hangry eating carbs. So if we're a vegan or a vegetarian, we're always hungry because we're not having the right meats and fats. And so finally, we get on a carnivore diet or a ketogenic diet, and we're never hungry anymore. And I experienced that. And I got to one of my lowest weights on a ketogenic diet without any disordered eating behaviors. But I realized I was under eating, but I followed that eat when you're hungry. And I never felt hungry. And and then once I went carnivore, I, and I did the proper nutrients, I gained some of the weight back and I was at a healthier weight, but I think a lot of women are like, well, I have weight to lose. I'm just not going to eat as much because I don't feel hungry. And some of my clients eat like 800 calories and they're like, this is sufficient. And it's maybe like two beef patties in the day. And it's very little nutrition. And then yeah. over a few months, they're like, this diet doesn't work. And I recommend them eating more and they blame that it was the lack of carbs. And what I find so interesting with that is there's so many other levers you can pull. So yes, um, the under eating is absolutely one, but maybe what, as we're talking about some of the T4 gets converted to T3 in the liver, maybe it's that we're inundating our liver with too much nutrition, right? So if you're eating a lot of liver, um, beef liver or chicken liver in a day, that the, it causes the liver to store a lot more of the nutrition. Maybe it's the, and then couple that with maybe higher fat. Well, that also affects the production of bile. If your liver is not functioning as well. And then if you're taking medication, that's another tax on the liver. Um, oh, yeah. Medications. Definitely. Yeah. Stim- yeah. And, well, all the stuff, you know, supplements too. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So fair you enough. Know, it doesn't tax the liver. <laughs> I, I do think that hypernutrition from, um, liver can, uh, tax the liver, liver, eating liver. Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because I know it's different than the taxation of medicine and supplements and anything else you do. And so that is true. But since the liver's role is to store some of the B12 and maybe it's not a ton of that because it is a water soluble, but B6 is a little bit stored as well, but really like all the fat soluble vitamins are stored in the liver. And so it's just an added load to the liver. I guess that's the better way to say it, but yes. And then a couple that with drinking alcohol and, you know, whatever else you do that then taxes the liver, some of the, the metabolism is managed by the liver and so on. And so that could be one reason why maybe someone becomes more hypothyroid on a carnivorous diet. It could be that, like you were saying, it's in the tissues or it's in our gut, but it's just funny that the answer is carbs. And so I don't know if, is it, the excuse that people wanted to eat carbs. I don't know. Like, what do you see in your practice? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I, um, the carbs are not, the thyroid does not need carbs. Um, carbs give you fast energy. And as you said, a lot of women are under eating right. and, or maybe, you know, men too are under eating. People are under eating and they go to bed and they're, they can't sleep because they, their brain doesn't have energy for them to sleep basically. So it's not the carbs that make them sleep better. It's the fact that they're eating something that gives them more of an immediate 
quick energy. I always call it ether. You know, the, the fat and the protein are the base and the carb is a little bit of treble on top. And you hear that you get rid of that right away. But that's not that's not the, the lack of that is not what's causing the problem. It's really the lack of nutrition. It's the malnourishment from what I've seen in my practice. Um, that's why I make. And I don't think that the liver, I don't think that fat is a problem for the liver. We have gallbladders for that reason. I mean, that's why we have gallbladders. People who didn't eat a lot of fat, dieted all the time, probably have a hypotonic gallbladder, but it's there in order to just shoot out bile right. when right. fat hits the system. And I don't recommend people eating 400 grams of fat. I recommend small amounts throughout the day. It's a healing protocol. It's medicine. I always say fat is medicine in the beginning. Um, so fat with the meals, but also snacks throughout the day. So they're kind of grazing on fat. So they maintain that energy level in order to, for them to make this transition. If they're transitioning from a low calorie diet or a carb diet to carnivore diet, you can't make energy out of protein. So where's the energy coming from? All of a sudden the glucose is gone. You're going to have to give some fat in order to maintain that energy. So you don't go haywire until you're adapted to it, until you're able to grab it as a resource. Otherwise your body is looking for glucose. Where to go? It doesn't recognize the fat. It doesn't know how really want to use the protein unless you're starving. So that's why I recommend the high fat. And I fully agree. When I was, um, I was plant-based for 12 years. And then when I transitioned to keto, I had a really hard time. And back then there wasn't all this education about electrolytes and exogenous supplements. So, so it took me to eat high fat for me to really transition. And now I don't eat as much high fat. I still do higher fat than probably the average carnivore I'm guessing, but um, I still feel best with high fat. And, and I agree. I think a lot of people are scared to still add that high fat. Uh, One, they'll say they have the loose stools or two, it's just they're gaining weight and, and it's from the decades of under eating. And so when they're starting to finally nourish, if, if carbs are not necessary for thyroid health, why, why mm-hmm. do people believe that it's carbs that will provide thyroid health? Hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Because they're everywhere. Because I I live in Italy. Can you imagine? I mean, there's pasta fruit it's 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 constant everywhere and they think that i'm crazy because i'm anglo they think i can actually live on meat and fat because it's not in my heritage but it's actually is i was raised on biscuits and pies and all that kind of stuff so i just again i think it's quick energy the whole world is going out for coffee pastries and cigarettes at 11 o'clock and then they go out again the whole world three o'clock in the afternoon, they're all crashing. So it's a stimulant they're looking for. Sugar is a stimulant. To me, sugar is a stimulant. It gives you that quick drug type energy. That's why you reach for candy. If you're crashing, you're not going to reach for bacon. We do now, but if you have the candy and you're crashing and the bacon's there, your brain will remember, oh, candy used to make me feel bam right away. Good. You're going to eat the candy. A lot of my clients don't get that afternoon dip. And if they do, a lot of them, if you really look at their diet closely, so they're almost all carnivore, but then they're eating those like drips of whether it's fruit, but lately I feel like it's the honey trend, but they're having drips (laughs) of honey. And I'm like, it's, that's the reason, right? It's your body's not fully using the fat. It's whenever you give that, like that dose of fructose or glucose, it's tapping into that. And then you have that dip in energy, but some people say they perform better um, at the gym with the honey or they sleep better. And so they leave in some, and so it becomes difficult to just have them really fully transition because there's other advocates that are fans of um, adding some of that. Yeah. I'd like to address that though, as an athlete um, performance has to be, you have to think about what you're looking for in performance. I mean, if I, 
former running Kung Fu, I'm sure if I ate some honey before doing a Kung Fu form, I would probably would have popped it out a little bit better. But what was it taking away from me? I killed my adrenals doing Kung Fu. Now I'm doing stand-up paddleboarding. It's a lot completely different form of energy. It's more like running, but slower. And I think that we, they're looking, it's a stimulant. I don't, I'm sorry. If, if you want honey and you're going to work out, you're looking for your body to be able to perform how many reps, how much weight, if that's what it takes, it may be too much for your body to be doing what you're trying to do. And I'm just playing devil's advocate, but then why is it that, you know, there's that whole group of repeaters essentially, right? Let's just call them out. But why, why do they say like in all their studies, and maybe it's the rat studies you had just mentioned, but they say that, um, our, a low carb diet or a ketogenic carnivore diet gets our insulin too low. And then it basically affects any thyroid production and our, um, our metabolism just tanks. And so as women, we need even a little bit. I don't know. I'm so I have looked that there's no, I don't find those studies. I mean, from all the years I've been studying thyroid function, that's just not the case. You know, um, I just have to catch it, you know, show me it to me because I don't find it all the research I've done and I've looked for it because of this. Um, and then the um, other question, when you're talking about fat with digestion, so the thyroid is absolutely has something to do with metabolism. And so from my understanding, when you're a hypothyroid, your metabolism, metabolism is a little slower. And so therefore it may be hard to digest fat. And so that's my struggle. So there are some of my clients that are hypothyroid and they're like, okay, I'm eating your 75% fat or 80% fat in terms of total calories. And then um, now my digest, like I feel so bloated and I feel unwell and I see that hypothyroid has a slow metabolism. So maybe I don't need as much fat. What are your thoughts with that? Well, the thyroid um, metabolizes everything, the glucose, protein, and fat. You're not going to digest anything if you're hypothyroid. So that's the problem. They're not, if, if they're hypothyroid, they can't make energy. So their energy that they eat without enough adequate T3 is not going to, I mean, the food that they eat is not going to turn into energy. So I really think that it's the stimulant aspect of the carbs that people are looking for. Um, in the long run, if you're climbing the mountains, some matcha or yerba mate or whatever, these stimulants are, you're going to need them to get to the top. But if you're not trained or you have to do it all the time, but these are not feats, physical feats that we're supposed to do. It's too stressful for us. So if you want to do that to your body, absolutely, you're going to need a stimulant. But if you want to be healthy without having a lot of inflammation and have a good amount of exercise that you enjoy, that makes you feel good, then fat and protein are adequate. That's, that's really the thing that maybe people are trying to do something that isn't good for them unless they stimulant. As far as digesting fat, um, I just haven't had a lot of issues with them. Again, I break it into small amounts throughout the day and they are able to digest the fat. Yeah. Um, after I interviewed you the first time and I'll put our first interview in the show notes, but after you mentioned the five meals a day and small bits so that they can get the fat in, that made so much sense to me, right? I think when we come from a standard American diet, we start thinking we need to intermittent fast all the time. We need to lower our insulin. We need to lower it now. But if you're eating adequate amounts of fat with protein, your insulin shouldn't go up much. So having five meals a day, which we get trained coming into ketogenic diet, that's not a good thing, right? Because your blood sugar goes up. But on a meat-based diet, the insulin won't get as triggered. So it's okay to eat the five small meals. And so when I ch changed some of my clients that could not tolerate any of the excess fat, the five small meals a day work beautifully. So thank you for that. I, I have sure. totally implemented that um, in my practice. So one thing I find so interesting with the whole using sugar as probably the stimulus is that when we when we consume too much sugar, we, we basically knock on pancreas door to produce more insulin. But if we were mm -hmm. to just let the pancreas heal, and this is a thought that I got from your post, but if you just let your pancreas heal, that's where all our digestive enzymes are. Right. And a lot of the clients I work with, since I focus on gut health, a lot of them cannot digest their foods, right? You see their lack of nutrition in certain tests, even though they're eating like two pounds of meat. And so it's mm -hmm. like, I need to put them on digestive enzymes at first because they're not digesting and absorbing. 
And then some of them start eating the honey or the fruit and it's just counterintuitive, right? If people understood what the pancreas role is with insulin versus digestive enzymes, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I mean, it's every hormone producing gland. If you abuse it, it's going to get tired. So you can say that for the adrenals, for the thyroid and for the, for the pancreas. Absolutely. So if you're pushing on the pancreas all the time to make insulin, um, the other part of it will just, it's right there, right? It's just like the parathyroid is dam- is somewhat inflamed. If your thyroid is inflamed, right? It's right there. The tissue will not be, you know, may not be as functional. I also uh, recommend digestive enzymes in the beginning of someone's hypothyroid because they don't have, they have lower hydrochloric acid and hypothyroidism, have lower gastrin, they have fewer digestive enzymes, the bacteria population is not right with hyperthyroidism. So all those things, I definitely also recommend adjustive mechanics in those situations. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. When, when someone is hypothyroid, how do you know that it's the thyroid versus the hypothalamus versus any of the other organs that we mentioned, um, or the pituitary, like, how do you know where the kind of defect is? That's, that's really hard. I see um, I see, I have maybe seen one person who had a conversion issue, oh, like high cool. T4, low T3, hardly ever see that. Um, you know, when you think about pituitary hypothalamus, you, there med- medicine's always looking for tumors, right? So if you think about what the pituitary is doing, it's really busy. If you're worried about the pancreas being busy, think about the, the pituitary, all the, it's a huge orchestra of hormones, you know, going out and coming in. And I think anytime you overstimulate production in any part of the body, you're going to get some problems. Um, There are pathway issues. There are receptor issues there. So there are just like in iodine, we say fluoride, the halides attached to iodine receptors. There are things that attach to thyroid receptors and that the thyroid hormone won't attach. So there's all kinds of things that could go, you know, go wrong. Uh, Flavonoids, coffee, tea, those things interfere. Aspirin interferes. Again, I mentioned beta block. Calcium is really important for thyroid function. So beta blockers are blocking calcium. Benzodiazepines, there are plenty of things. If if a person has gone through their lives taking these substances, perhaps that has downregulated function in a pathway. I don't know that you can pin with the kind of tests we have available to us. Again, I'm going to say I go back to symptoms mm-hmm. and clean up the diet, make sure they have iodine. And you may need, and obviously nutritional absorption is gut function is really important. So I don't think we can know where it is all the time or where the whole, where the problem is, but we can just make them feel better. Right. And it doesn't really matter, right? As long as you pull the levers of the matter. diet. Yeah, the diet. Small thyroid. I have several patients with tiny thyroids. You can't see the thyroid. They just like they can't see. If you have Alzheimer's, they can't see your brain until you're dead. You can't see the thyroid until they're dead. An ultrasound is not really going to tell you much. It just gives you a very vague idea. They can catch, you know, look at a few nodules. They send a sound, a ping to see if it's how the tissue, if it's vascular enough, so that if it's ecogenic, right? If it's hard and if, if the ping comes back, that means it's not vascular and it has, there's issues, but smaller thyroids will produce fewer hormones. What do you think then is the reason why thyroid imbalances are becoming more and more prevalent? Diet, uh, all these medications that I just said, all of my, most of my patients come to me on medication. All I have two daughters, all their friends are on antidepressants. That's why I always recommend, that's why my kids are carnivore now. So there's so many things, iodine, iodine. I think that there's a lot more pollution interfering with iodine absorption. I think that there's overstimulation, um, light, phones. Again, the stimulation will over, possibly more thyroid is being made and just wasted. Just you're running through it. You're just like we said for the pancreas, for the insulin. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's kind of like how if you produce too much insulin over time, you become insulin resistant. And then maybe all these factors that initially get your thyroid to work a lot, and then eventually it becomes resistant. It makes sense. I mean, 
Yeah. If you're constantly, constantly pushing yourself. I mean, I did that myself. I'm going to be 59. And I did that to myself with sports. If you're constantly doing, and there's so many people who are doing that. I did that to my adrenals. You're there's something's going to have to give. So I think thyroid function will definitely be affected by that. One of the things you're bringing up is that we pull on our bodies to produce more thyroid. So um, I hear from you, it's um, exercise for sure. And then maybe some of the medication supplements, Um, what other things can be overusing the thyroid and maybe it's everything, but just want to. Everything. If if thyroid hormone conversion is done in all central nervous system tissue, just think of that happening all the time. Okay. Constantly. So, so I think light, I think sleep, um, not sleeping lowers function. I mean, it's, I mean, I hate, I don't think you should be a Luddite and go and go in a cave and, and not do anything. But I just think if we care, compare our lifestyle to 50 years ago, um, I think there's a lot less sensory stimulation sense. Oh, there's a lot of perfumes. Now there's this antiseptics everywhere. These, there's all these things are central nervous system stimulants. I know that's why I was never really a big fan of like those tea tree oils, the lavender scents, you know, um, a lot of people use those. And I think there's been a recent study that came out that it's overstimulating the endocrine system. And yeah, I just, and then it's these essential oils, like some people are okay with putting it just topically on your skin and not ingesting it. And then some people are recommending ingesting everywhere, they're in the air everywhere. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and I've never just been a fan and it makes a lot of sense, especially if we become stimulated by regular sense. Well, these very concentrated ones, what does that mean for us? And, you know, I'm sure there's some benefits, but maybe a benefit can quickly become a toxin, right? So I, I think that we are, I mean, our sense of, of scent of smell is incredibly important to alert us to danger. So it would be beneficial if it were medicinal in the sense that it would be possibly overriding something else, like if you're injured or something. But if you think about all the things, all the, we use things that have benefits for rats, you know, we see on paper that they have benefits, but if you're constantly subjecting your body to these, it's again, it's hyperstimulation. Medicine suppresses function. We want to improve function. So, you know, even if there are medicinal benefits, they may not be something that you need while you're, you know, hanging around your house in the, you know, in the morning. Yeah. I mean, they have diffusers that just are on all the time. Right. So yeah, I'm on the same page. Um, Let's talk about iodine. So everyone is scared of iodine. (laughs) I mean, I've done multiple interviews and, and I've interviewed with Hakala Labs and, you know, I've even had some feedback. Well, well, they, they make one of the tablets. And so therefore, obviously they're going to show that everyone is deficient because they, it's, so it's like a conflict of interest. Yeah. So therefore they're not accurate. Right. And there are so many studies that show um, the iodine deficiency and how our armies used to use it and just a bunch of things. But why, why is conventional medicine so scared of iodine? And there's this fear in the space that says, if you take too much iodine, you could wreck your thyroid. Well, I think that's primarily because of the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. So up until 1948, every single thyroid doctor was prescribed, was giving Lugol's iodine to their patients for hyper and hypothyroidism. The the thyroid needs 12 milligrams. The breasts need five milligrams. Mucus is incredibly, iodine is really important for all the mucus producing tissues so sinuses, vaginal, intestinal, but the wolf Chikoff, the, they they basically used radioactive iodine on those mice, and um, and radioactive iodine is the medical form of iodine, right? Where all the medications are laced, the, the, uh, the antithyroid medications are laced with radioactive iodine, right? Natural iodine is not toxic. Radioactive iodine is toxic. So they used radioactive iodine. They used tons of it. And what it did was temporarily the thyroid was saturated with iodine. So it didn't need to take it up anymore temporarily for like two days, right? So they said that was hyperthyroidism, but they never tested those rats' thyroid levels. 
So oh. we don't know if their thyroid, if their T3 was, T4 were overproduced, right? They never um, did this in humans. It, it's so it didn't even show that those rats became hyperthyroid, right? So even Wolf Chaikov said in, in 1969 that it was a transitory effect and that was not even basically the, the study didn't work, right? It wasn't true. That, but medicine grabbed it, never has never given up on that. And because iodine is natural, of course. So they recommend with the medicines, radioactive iodine, something normal and cheap like Lugol's which gives your thyroid, the potassium iodide, and your breasts, uterus, and then the men, prostate, the iodine, elemental iodine. That's bad for you, yeah. That's what they want you to believe, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because everybody I've interviewed, like Lynn Farrow, Dr. Brownstein, they are big advocates for iodine, and it's just, there's so much pushback. In- well, we know. No, I was just going to ask you, do you, do you think you can overdo iodine? And I'm so in the Hakala labs, the founder, he said that they did studies with one gram of iodine and they have not shown um, any overdoing iodine. And we are recommending maybe like 12 and a half, even up to 50 milligrams, which is compared to a thousand milligrams. So have you seen anybody in your practice, like no. overdo iodine? Okay. No, I have not. No, I have not. It just, it's eliminated via the urine. Okay. Same page. I mean, um, that's in my experience and my experience, but I don't know. I wouldn't drink a gallon. <laughs> of course. Definitely not. You'd be sick to your stomach. Would it ruin your thyroid? No, I don't think so. I think you'd be so sick to your stomach, you'd vomit. And more people are doing the Heckler Lab iodine test and they're showing excess levels of fluoride and excess levels of bromide. Yeah. And so whatever they're supplementing with iodine, it's not even getting really absorbed because it's helping to detox the other halides, as you mentioned. There's so much more of that. There's so much more. Again, that's kind of the things that I mentioned before, the substances. We can't even see every year the, the, you know, the organization that tells you which chemicals are in the sunscreen and then they've changed the name. And there's always more chemicals in our water supply, in our air that we don't even know about. And I just think iodine is a, a safe, cheap way to detox and detox in the sense that sort of keep your mucus thriving uh, strong enough to keep stuff out of you. So yes, definitely. There's a lot more of receptor pollution. This year we had a snowstorm in Texas and uh, we weren't able to drink our water because the filtration system from the city got messed up. And so one of the recommendations was to use a little bit of iodine if you had it to be able to drink yeah. your tap water. And it's funny because it's like, well, then why are they so anti-iodine? I just wanted to clarify. So this is really good. What are your thoughts about some of the companion supplements? So I know, I think with one of our clients, you recommend not to take the selenium. I'm just curious. Some people are saying to take the selenium with your meats. I know that there are some meats that have selenium. I found that it's a mixed bag based on the hair mineral test. Some people even though they eat sufficient meat, maybe they're not absorbing the selenium. So I wanted to pick your brain about that. Do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, selenium's funny, you know, it can become toxic. So it's kind of not like B12 or it's actually too much of it can, cannot be a good idea. And you also, you don't need a lot. Got you it. don't need a lot of selenium. And I have never had anybody who had a conversion issue. The selenium is important for converting. Got it. The T- that's the, the D1, D2, D3 are made out of, selenium protein. So you don't need a lot. I think that in eggs, carnivore and eggs and, and meat can get an adequate amount. Usually we used to, as a naturopath before I became carnivore, I used to recommend 200 micrograms. Now as a carnivore, I would max at hundred micrograms. If, you know, maybe on one of your tests, they come up really low, but I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I normally only recommend about, I think it's, is one, I forget how much, I think it's maybe 99 milligrams or maybe that's potassium, but yeah, usually yeah, it's potassium. a very low dose. So I, I'm on the same page. And when I talked to Dr. Brownstein, he lives in Michigan. He said in his waters, I guess there's sufficient selenium. So he never recommends supplementing selenium. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's really bio-individual. And then the cofactors, the other cofactors, they're in the meat, basically, you know, it's the zinc, the it, it's, it's sort of in there. And that's why the carnivore diet is so great that you have all these, if you're eating a plant-based diet, yeah, you're going to probably need some cofactors with your iodine in order to absorb it and synthesize it. But on a carnivore diet, I think you need less. 
the Hakala Labs mentioned that when you first start um, supplementing iodine, that your TSH may go up really high. And that's a normal function of just to absorb um, yes, iodine. And so I had a client that her TSH went up and it was like eight something and she was only taking a couple drops. So I was like, Oh, I don't know if that's ideal, but do you see the TSH go up in your clients and then, or your patients and then you don't see it at all. Okay. Interesting. I haven't. Yeah. Does the iodine impact the thyroid supplementation, the levels? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So the iodine just gives the raw material. I really also recommend iodine, not just for the thyroid, but for breast and ovaries. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, you have to go in a carnivore. You have to have good nutrients and iodine in order to make thyroid hormone. It definitely helps. People usually have a few days, immediately they feel a little bit of energy that they didn't have before. I see that all the time. I've had some people where they take a drop or two and and, uh, the 2%, and then mm-hmm. their body freaks out because maybe yeah, they, just... too. okay. Yeah. Why, why is that? It's just, they're so deficient that their body's kind of, yeah. yes. Or they have to, or they have too many halides. So if they have a lot of fluoride or bromide, that tiny drop of iodine is just going to make the cup run over because the body thinks there's a ton of iodine when there's actually fluoride and bromide. So you have to do the, you know, Brownstein salt loading protocol and eliminate that. Usually I recommend two days off in between of the first two weeks of the iodine protocol to eliminate the lights. Or I have a client, she is, I think she's 16 and she was diagnosed as hypothyroid and she has been supplementing just a little bit of the iodine and it's been a life changer for her. So that I'm sorry, definitely for adolescents, very important. Oh yeah. She, she feels night and day different. And it was sad because she felt depressed and, you know, anything that she'd eat would affect her and she'd feel bloat. And then she just, the biggest change for her, cause she's struggling with the diet a little bit, but the, but she's incorporating more meats, but she's just having a hard time removing some of the gluten and stuff, but she's supplementing iodine. And that change has been so significant on her. And it just further, you know, after talking with you and all the other interviews I've done, it's just, I don't know why people are so scared of iodine when it could do wonders um, for people. It's, it's very sad. It's a crime actually, because I really, you know, the recent, I mean, there are so many t- fibrocystic breasts. A lot of my patients have their cysts and then they don't have cysts anymore. Or they don't feel them anymore. And then it's just too big, but again, it's natural. So it's the same problem we have with, we say all these good things the carnivore diet does, Who's going to make money off of that? You know, know. a few ranchers and chicken (laughs) farmers. So it's not, unfortunately, that is, you know, that has a lot to do with it. I know. And I agree. And it's unfortunate. And, and the more that we are getting censored and on a lot of these platforms is unfortunate, but what do you think about copper? In the hair mineral space, there's a group of people that believe that everyone's copper deficient. They have copper that's not usable in their system. And then there's a party of people that believe everything is, everyone is copper toxic. Have you seen a trend with either way? Not really. I mean, copper is also important for the thyroid. So you have to have some copper. You can't be, that would not be great. So um, I haven't really, you know, I don't do a lot of hair mineral testing on it because I'm, yeah. I'm only asking because some people get scared of zinc. Oh, it's going to deplete my copper even further. And so I'm sorry. If they're supplementing, is that because um, if they're supplementing? Yeah, maybe some of it's supplementing, but then some of the foods, let's say oysters is one that has a lot of zinc, but then there's a little bit of copper. So then they might not want to eat that because they're like, well, that's high in zinc and I don't want to lower my already low copper. And so they're, even with some of the foods, they'll think that. So I was just wondering if, well, I really, what I believe is that you have to be more careful with supplements. If you're eating food, I mean, we know people who Indian tribes in the U S who ate nothing but oysters and they were really healthy. So um, I think with food, your body will say, okay, I got too much of that. I'll just eliminate this via the feces or the urine, Mm -hmm. but your body, if it's food, it can, it's in a bioavailable source and it's not in a source that could ever be toxic. Right. And I I don't think, so I think our body does a good job of deciding, differentiating between do I need this or do I not? I think that is an issue more with supplements. I think that's a fair statement. I mean, you, you work with some of my clients, so 
I focus mostly on the gut supports and there might be like one or two actual nutrient supports, but in general, I try to just get the gut to work and then you don't need of any of the supplements, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We both have a mutual client that basically she's been carnivore for a while and has healed a lot. And then her, her, she was hypothyroid before she got off the medication, was doing all of the iodine, but maybe not to the amount that she ideally needed. But yeah. I think working with you, she just, it was probably a better option to, for now, take a little bit of thyroid medication. Are there just some people that just can't get off thyroid medication? What, what's your thoughts? Like, why did she need to get on thyroid medication? Maybe she wasn't ready to get off it because she was hypothyroid before carnivore. But I mean, are there people that can just fully heal one day on a carnivore high fat diet? Some, um, I think they'd have to be younger than me. That's for sure. Years and years of dieting, years and years of stressing your body will, even if you have all the nutrients in place, like I said before, with the pathways, maybe just, we can't see exactly what isn't functioning properly. And if you are having symptoms and you're not feeling well, um, I think of T4 as medication, but I don't really think of natural desiccated thyroid as much as medication. If you want to get off all medications and you're taking uh, somebody, you know, hypothetical person is taking beta blockers, antidepressants, all these things, and they have natural desiccated thyroid, I would call all those things medications. And I would think they're getting off of all those things, they're getting off of medications. But if they still have symptoms, then I don't think it's a bad thing to it's your body needs it. We can't really, especially if you have symptoms. So you live in a no stress environment. Remember the body needs more if you're stressed. Mm -hmm. So what we see as stress 50 years ago, somebody would not have been able to handle. So if you can go to an Island and you can fish or hunt and, you don't have taxes or anything to worry about and you eat a great carnivore diet, probably maybe you could get off, not need any more thyroid support in that way. But I don't know who can do that. And it also depends how old you are. Okay. So basically if you've overstimulated your body, there might just be a point with your age that a diet can definitely lower the amounts, but maybe you might still need some. And that makes sense. Some people think carnivore is a magic pill, but it does a lot, but I think sometimes we still need some supports. Yeah. I don't I, like yeah, pills though. I wouldn't want to think of a carnivore diet. great. I wouldn't want to think of it as a medicine. It's, it's just new giving your body what it needs to heal itself. Why are you taking a pill? You're giving your body what it needs to heal itself. So if your body is in some way that we don't know a slightly damaged or handicapped, right. then I, um, I wanted to ask you about bioidentical hormones. So I have some clients um, recently, maybe in their forties, they started taking some of the like estrogen, progesterone. I'm not even sure which one, but they're more in their seventies and taking the same amount and then taking like every single sex hormone you could think of, including DHA and all of this. And I just started thinking, I don't know if that can be good for you. Right. So if you're taking the same hormone levels as someone that or or in your body, the total amount is the same as someone that's 40 when you're 70. Is that good? I mean, can it possibly fast gear aging? Um, are you talking about 70 year old would be, would need fewer hormones? So if the 70 year old is taking the same amount of like estrogen and progesterone that maybe a 40 year old would have, but they're right. taking it exogenously with maybe the bioidentical hormones. Oh, so the 70 year old is trying to raise their levels up to a 40 year old person. Essentially. Yes. By taking hormones. Okay. Horm- those, those hormones are definitely medicine. So that's something you definitely want to get off. Um, but your body, we always need estrogen. We always need progesterone. I mean, when I'm 70, I want to have the same energy and sex life. And I mean, I'm going to look different of course, but is when I was 40. So we always need those things. We don't need those things if we're not going to have babies. So we, I mean, sorry, we do need those things, but we don't need ovarian estrogen. If we're not going to have babies, we don't need ovarian progesterone. If we're not going to have babies, we need adrenal progesterone and adrenal estrogen. We need those. We needed those when we were 
pre-adolescent, you know, before we menstruated, and we need them when we're no longer menstruating. We never stop needing them. So the 70-year-old definitely needs estrogen and progesterone, but I would hope that they would get it from their fat. I would hope that they would eat a high fat diet or enough fat in order for them to be able to make their own progesterone and estrogen, because that's what our body is supposed to do after menopause, with menopause. Right. My overarching question, I guess it needs to be very bio-individual, so maybe there's no answer, but if she's taking the same amount, and let's just assume she's taking the adrenal version of these um, hormones and not the ovary one, but if she's taking the same amount she was taking back then, can it accelerate the aging process? Is having too many of these bio-identical hormones, like what's the adverse effect of it, even if she's saying she feels great on them? And I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm terribly biased about this stuff. So you know that from reading my book, they're synthetic, bioidentical hormones are synthetic, we don't make them, they're no less, they're no less synthetic than the Premarin, you know, conjugated from horse, you know, from the urine of horses. So I don't, I don't see that it does it accelerate the aging process, too much hormone of, of any kind, definitely would definitely affect the liver, um, accelerate the aging process in the sense that too much estrogen lowers thyroid function. There's all kinds of stuff that the, that too much of something that we don't need is going to cause inflammation and possibly, I mean, if, if, if inflammation is aging or. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. And she's hypothyroid. So, I mean, who knows if some of those. There sex- you go. You can't make estrogen and progesterone. If you're hypothyroid, you can't synthesize them. T3 synthesizes those hormones. So again, on an as need basis, the certain part of your body that needs progesterone and estrogen at that time, T3 will come along and say, okay, that part needs it. Okay. Make it boom via aromatase. That'll be synthesized down the hormones cascade. So, but not if you're hypothyroid, you don't have enough T3. Right. But so- you Makes sense to me to go higher up. Why take these synthetic hormones down here? The thyroid is the one that decides everything is the hormone of the body that decides everything. So the major orchestra conductor here, fix that. And she might just be in a vicious cycle, right? So because she's taking everything exogenously, maybe her body is just very confused or the conductor is very confused. And that makes a lot of sense. I just wanted to pick your brain about that. There's a relationship between sodium and blood pressure and the thyroid. Can you just talk about that pathway a little bit for people to understand? Yeah. So, so hypothyroidism causes hypertension. Um, the beat, it causes vascular resistance because the heart has to beat so much harder because everything is slowed down. So there's less volume for each heartbeat. So it has to be boom harder and that causes vascular resistance, therefore causing hypertension at the same time we're not even considering the adrenergic stimulation of the hypothyroid, which would also cause hypertension, sympathetic hypertension, which is most people who have hypertension have sympathetic hypertension, but then they go on beta blockers. But anyway, um, <laughs> you have sodium issues and hypothyroidism. Your body will, the kidneys don't handle salt right anymore. They don't handle any, any electrolytes properly anymore. So you will have a tissue accumulation of sodium because it's not being drained by the kidneys. So the, the uh, organs aren't getting sodium. So they're not getting the really important sodium potassium pump activators for, you know, stimulation of function, but you have all the sodium in the tissue. So you're very sensitive to salt, tiny bit of salt makes you feel terrible because your, your body thinks it has all the salt in you, but it's not getting to the heart. And that causes a lot of problems. So what do they do? Because I, I do have clients like that, right? In their hair mineral tests, they'll show that they need salt. But when they yeah. feel, take salt, they feel horrible. And they are hypothyroid. So what's the idea? Um, I would also look at adrenal function. Because, you know, the adrenals are the ones that aldosterone via the kidney. I would also yeah. look at but I feel like everyone is high stress. So at this point with my clients, I just think, okay, aldosterone, the adrenals, the endocrine systems already crashed. So let's focus on, you know, the thyroid and gut health and obviously lowering all the stress. But so what would you recommend to somebody like that though? So that they have hypothyroid and they're showing needs of salt, but when they take in salt, they feel 
you know, the edema and other things, they just do not feel good. So. Yeah. Um, well, I'd have to see how they're treating their hypothyroidism. Okay. Fair enough. That would be one very important part. So T4, mm, a lot of issues with T4, uh, with levothyroxine, um, only medications because there's, there's only T4. So we're, we've been talking a long time about conversion. There will be conversion issues if you can't convert the T4 into T3, T2, T1. Okay. So that will definitely. And then also, I mean, I have patients who are feeling terrible and after a week of a high fat carnivore diet and iodine, they want to go run or they want to do something because they feel, and maybe they feel a tiny bit better or they just feel like they have to, they should. I always say exercise should be fun. And if you really have the energy to do it, do it, but don't push yourself. Otherwise you're only going to worsen your thyroid function, your adrenal function. You definitely won't lose weight. So, so in general, what I'm hearing from you is uh, for women that have hormonal imbalances, thyroid imbalances, you would recommend, I would recommend definitely a carnivore diet. Like I said before, gives you all the nutrients you need and there's no baggage with the carnivore diet. If you have any absorption issues or, digestive issues. I mean, you may have them initially until you transition, but you're not taking in all this crap that you don't need bang for your buck. You're getting all the nutrition that you need. And then iodine. Absolutely. And I mean, the stress boy, that's, you know, that sort of comes up a lot. And when we talk and when I talk with my patients, we're pushing ourselves a lot. And I think that we have to kind of look at with what we're doing is bringing, uh, bringing us joy is that thing, right? There's this, uh, does it give you joy? If what you're doing is not making you happy, then we all have to work. That's enough stress. We have, uh, we try to find something that makes us feel uh, validated in life right. and nutrition just does works wonders. And unfortunately, many adolescents are iodine deficient, like you saw with your patient. Yeah. The body's doing so much at that, so much at that period in your life but women more because women have more iodine needing tissues. So breasts and ovaries. So do your daughters take iodine as well? Oh yeah. I'm always shipping to Glasgow, to Greece, to shipping my son to shipping out iodine. Yeah. I'm um, I've been giving my sons um, a little bit of iodine, but they hate the taste of the drops. And I feel that the drops are a little bit more effective than the, the tablet version. So Oh, I do too, because there's more absorption. Okay. I do too. Okay. Um, I use gelatin caps. You can try gelatin caps. Just put a drop in a gelatin cap. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's so smart. Okay. Yeah. That's the biggest um, struggle of my clients is I cannot drink that those yeah. drops because yeah. it's disgusting. So I'm like, yeah. it with a little bit of salt water or, or like take like a shot and just add a little bit of water and then drink something else right after. But so then a lot of I mean, people opt for the tablets, but okay. I didn't even think about the gelatin. Yeah. I've never, I've never recommended the tablets, but also, you know, when you're swallowing it, I, if you have an infection of some for a nasal and uh, respiratory issue, I would drink it because, you know, iodine is vapor. So you want to get it in, in the nose and the mucus. If you don't have any of that, just the gelatin cap is fine. That's so interesting. I never thought about doing that because I interviewed with a dentist, a carnivore dentist, and he recommended that some people swish with the probiotics in the mouth and then swallow it at night. But I never thought that, yeah, the iodine actually makes sense as well. Um, It's fascinating because there's so much more information um, coming out about dental health and how it affects our whole, because we are swallowing so much mucus every day. And if you have oral issues or nasal issues, it's going down into your gut and then it affects everything else. So it's just well, salt pipes. I recommend salt pipes. So what's that? Salt pipes. So you, um, <laughs> you take a little bottle, you add some salts, like a teaspoon, one drop of iodine and you inhale, you, you breathe it in and that can clear your nasal passages oh, and you so get, cause you need it in your respiratory system. You need it in lung tissue. Mucus is our immune system is mucus. You need iodine. That's why there's so much iodine in our mucus because it's so important to our immune system. A lot of mold lives in your nasal cavity. Yeah. And so a lot of people would have these drops of, I don't even know what they are. Um, 
but yeah, I guess iodine is an, an option. It's quite strong. It's quite strong. So it starts, you know, very slowly, but it definitely gets some iodine in your mucus because, you know, you need iodine everywhere. So if it goes in your intestines with a jogging cap or you're drinking it, if you're drinking it a tiny bit is vaporized and it'll go in your right. nasal passage, but it has a lot of work to do. So you could say that if definitely if you're congested or you have a cold, nobody I know who takes iodine has colds anymore, but if you happen to have a cold, you make a salt pipe and you, you know, one or two. That makes sense. Works. Mm-hmm. So where can people find your book? Um, how can people work with you if you're taking one-on-one clients? I mean, I refer people to you all the time because I feel like once people are uh, like healing in the gut health, I'm like, okay, when it's thyroid stuff, you have to talk to Dr. Bright. So where can people find you? Um, online, my website, elizbright.com. I'm putting up, I'm doing a series. I'm almost done with my thyroid series videos. I'm doing adrenal function next. I have kind of closed my physical studio since the last lockdown. So online is really where you're going to find me. So elizbright.com. And yes, I'm, I have a small, I like to keep things small, but I don't do a lot on Instagram because I do want to kind of keep things a little small so I can handle it. Yeah. That's a way to manage stress. So I fully get it. (laughs) So I can be paddleboarding on the water as well. I love paddleboarding. I haven't been able to go as much because my sons didn't know how to swim. My oldest now does. So I'm waiting for the younger one to catch up and swim so that, I mean, there's so much paddleboarding in Austin. So I'm just waiting because I used to paddleboard and kayak a lot, but with the kids, it's like, I think the mommy protective person in me was scared that they'd fall out of the water. And I, you know, so sure. Well, thank you so much for um, chatting with me. It's always a pleasure. And I, I love that you have these very simple ways to work on hormonal imbalances and thyroid imbalances that a lot of other doctors aren't really adhering to. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Judy. It's always nice to talk to you. Always. Okay. I will talk to you soon. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, guys. I hope that this interview shares that thyroid health is not just about the conversion of T3 and that it's just carbohydrates. From our discussion, you can understand that liver health, brain health, heart health, gut health, all has a play in hormonal health. Even our adrenals and our endocrine system has an impact on our thyroid health. I hope our discussion helps you to understand that it is not carbs that is the inadequacy and why you may not feel your best on a meat-based diet. Find the levers that work for you and that work for you in the long term to get to optimal health, but know that it is not the lack of carbohydrates that is causing hypothyroid or hyperthyroid, or Hashimoto's. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies, and I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.